Hello, and welcome to the Houston Experiment, a music podcast. My name is Greg Houston. I am a composer and founder of the Houston Experiment Concert Series, which is a series of music concerts held in New York City and streamed online for all to see. This podcast is for anyone who either loves music, works in the industry, or is curious in learning about music genres they may not be familiar with. If you would like to support the show, please go to www.patreon.com slash Houston Experiment and sign up as a sponsor. If you love the show, please take a moment and rate or review the Houston Experiment on Apple Podcast. Each rating and review will help people find the show, which will be greatly appreciated. And welcome to episode three of the Houston Experiment. My guest today will be Professor Alexandra Lewis from Brooklyn College, and I am very excited to talk to her about Maurice Ravel. And the specific topic we're going to be talking about is Maurice Ravel's many failed attempts at trying to win the Prix de Rome Prize. And at the time, this was a very prestigious award for composition, and it was a big stepping stone or so it seemed, for a very long and lasting career. And Ravel's many attempts at trying to win the Prix de Rome was very controversial and scandalous, and we're going to be talking about that in depth over this podcast. So this is going to be a two-part podcast, and it's going to be very interesting to talk and learn about Ravel's experience. So let's get started, and I hope you all enjoy. And I am here with Professor Alexander Lewis from Brooklyn College. Me and Professor Lewis, we go way back. I was actually a student in her Maurice Ravel class at Brooklyn College nine or ten years ago. And it seems like yesterday that I was in her class. It was a very fun class because not only did you learn about Maurice Ravel, the composer, but you also learned about the man himself and, most importantly, the conversation that we are going to be having today, which is his time applying and trying to win the Prix de Rome. And Maurice Ravel's entry into the Prix de Rome coincides with a conversation that I had in a previous podcast with composer Alex Shapiro about the struggles composers have in applying and trying to win a competition. So hearing about Ravel's struggles in trying to win the Prix de Rome will really open up a lot of eyes. And I am really looking forward in talking to her about this. So with that in mind, Professor Lewis, how have you been? It's been a very long time since we last talked. Oh, I'm doing just fine. And I'm really pleased to be here to talk with you about my favorite composer and a composer who I find is just endlessly fascinating, you know, to mention that I adore his music. And, you know, I've taught that seminar uh, several times after that. I think you were in the first uh, go-round. And uh, each time, my appreciation and, of course, knowledge of the man and his music deepens. And with that, you know, my love for his music just keeps growing. And I uh, continue to play his music, and um, 
he's just he's just a, a miraculous composer. So I'm very eager to to talk to you about this. Uh, very, this is a very interesting situation. The Maurice Ravel and the Prix de Rome, or I kind of came up with a, a nickname for this topic: the irresistible force meets the immovable object. That sounds about right. And talking about the Prix de Rome today, about or Maurice Ravel's attempts at trying to win the Prix de Rome. I mean this alone is a very long conversation because um the history of Maurice Ravel is like I in my opinion was so complicated trying to unravel the history of this man and to be honest professor lewis i mean the class that you taught it easily could have been a two semester course yeah yeah so trying to unravel the history of this person, I mean, that could probably be a future episode because that there's a lot to talk about in that category. But in the meantime, just to explain to the listener who doesn't really know anything about the Prix de Rome, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, but did the Prix de Rome start during the reign of Louis the Fourteenth of France? Uh, you know, I haven't, I haven't really studied the genesis of the Prix de Rome. I kind of focus on when music uh, became a participant, but because it, originally it was for artists and painters and you know people in the in the visual arts or I guess what they call the plastic arts. And then in 1803, it was expanded to include music. And that's, you know, that's kind of where I zero in. So it's a, a basically it's a, a scholarship that allowed the winner to go to Rome, stay at the Medici Villa, and for at least two to three years, and then they could uh, continue this. So basically it was for five years. It was kind of a five-year scholarship and they also were given a stipend, so they that allowed them, you know, living expenses, and allowed them to continue their work and develop, um, and you know, continue to compose and tr then travel. And then I believe after the five-year period, they were supported for another few years. But it came with it quite a responsibility. It was very prestigious, a very coveted achievement. But with it came the responsibility of measuring up to that prize. So you had to really prove yourself that, you know, you were the real deal. Right. And in a way, winning the Prix de Rome would kind of be used as a stepping stone for a composer to establish their career. Um, just to name a few famous winners of the Prix de Rome, um, there was Berlioz, they were as Debussy, you know, just to name a few. And then there were others whose names we have forgotten. Right. We mentioned them. It's like, who? I've never heard of that person. Right. And that's like the real ironic thing that a lot of people who won the Prix de Rome, which actually we will get into later in this podcast, you never even heard of because their careers never took off. But I think that 
what was really interesting that I took out of your class, Professor Lewis, was how people back then viewed the Prix de Rome as a measuring stick to see how successful a composer was, despite the fact that people who entered this competition already had established careers like Ravel did. So looking back at my paper, it brings back a lot of memories. Oh, and um, so basically, by the way, listeners, um, this entire podcast is based on a paper and presentation I made in Professor Lewis's class approximately nine years ago. A very fine paper. Yes. Thank thank you very much. Um, and I had a lot of fun writing this paper because it really opened my eyes as to how this competition was really structured. And it really brings to light now the problems that is being faced in the composition world with competitions and how how just confusing it is run. And one thing about the Prix de Rome, the one of the big differences between the Prix de Rome and composition competitions now and music compositions competitions in general, is that the Prix de Rome basically told you exactly what you had to do. And most compositions compositions competitions today don't really tell you what the requirements are and you don't even know who is looking at your score and you might not even get a response right so this was very very different so you know we should probably back up and um just talk about the whole the conservatoire uh yeah you know the conservatoire and i actually had the wonderful experience of being able to visit and go into the conservatoire being a non-student I when I one time when I went to Paris I had a good friend who was living there and she <laughs> she took me in and introduced me as being you know some sort of a very prestigious music professor from the United States so they allowed me to go in because not anybody can just go in there it's a rather cloistered kind of place and it was amazing, you know, the artwork, seeing portraits of some of the previous... By the way, you had to be French to enter the Prix de Rome. This was only for French citizens. Uh, but anyway, the, the building itself was full of history, but it is such a conservative place. And... Remains so, you know, in the, in the later 20th century. But during this time, and I'm sure this was keeping with the tradition, these, the professors and the, the training, super conservative, super strict, and incredibly intense. By American standards, if you are a music student at the conservatoire, it's so hard. Difficult. We have I we have a friend whose son was you know studying there, and even the the young the young kids like young teenagers are subjected to very rigorous and grueling training. And you know you're if you're a composer, they basically lock you up in a room and you can't come out until you have you know finished X assignment. And, you know, a little bit of this plays into the actual schedule 
for the, the pre de Rome. But anyway, the point is it was a very strict, demanding, everything is prescribed affair with little room. It was all about demonstrating for the student, the composer, that you were knowledgeable in the rules of counterpoint and, you know, strict voice leading and, and all of that stuff. And they weren't really interested in creativity and in imagination. So, um, but that, that's something that we need to be aware of. And of course, that was one of the problems that Ravel had with this whole endeavor in the first place. So the, I have, you know, I've got some wonderful excerpts here that I had, um, picked out to share. So here's, uh, here's the schedule. And this happens like clockwork every year. The beginning of May, first week of May was the preliminary round. This whole thing took like a couple of months if you entered. So you had to drop everything. And at the beginning of May, preliminary round, everybody had to write a fugue and a choral piece. This is for the academic requirements at the conservatoire, correct? Yeah, this was for the Prix de Rome. Oh, okay. Right. For the Prix de Rome. Then that would be judged. And then, you know, most people were eliminated. Let's say they had, you know, 15 to 20 people. The six or seven that were left standing made it to the next round where you were given a, and of course, every, the, the subject of the fugue was given to you. The text for the choral piece in the preliminary round was given to you. Right, so you had very little, it wasn't of your choosing. You had to, you know, work with the materials that they gave you. And everybody was given the same thing. Then if you made it to the next round, the final competition, you were given a cantata text. And you had to write a extended cantata for voice and orchestra. And then that was the basis for winning or losing your success in handling that assignment. So those were the two uh, hurdles that one had to achieve in order to, to win. And, you know, that, that so that's basically what they were doing. They were writing a fugue and a choral piece. That's the first round. Most everybody got eliminated. And if you were lucky enough to go on to the next round, then you had one month and you were locked up. You were basically locked in in a, spe in a place. Okay, they had a specific place where you'd be cloistered, and you know, one, uh, and and then you had one month to write this big extended cantata. And the other thing to keep in mind was there was a financial burden that came along with this. So if you entered the Prix de Rome, it was an it was not an expense paid situation, right? So you had to have you had to have the the money to be able to uh, support yourself and pay your living expenses. So consideration. And it took you out of circulation for, a, you know, a number of months. When, when all is said and done, it starts at early May, and the final performance for the prize winner and their cantata would be performed wasn't until mid-October. Wow, that's amazing. And one thing that you mentioned 
about the financial burden. That's something that is a major problem with composition competitions today because the financial burden to apply and enter a lot of these competitions is very tight because some competitions I have seen charge as much as $50 to enter. So if you're entering three pieces for this competition, you could be paying upwards to $150 to enter these competitions and you might not even know if these people are even looking at it. So backing up real quick, um, just going back to the academic requirements at the conservatoire, um, was it true that in addition to winning the Prix de Rome, these composers also had to win a prize just to stay in a particular class? Yeah, yeah. So they had, in addition to the in addition to the Prix de Rome, which of course was the ultimate uh, dream prize for all of the the composers, you had to enter your compositions into a co- the competition prize. And if you didn't win, then you got kicked. You could get kicked out. And that's what happened to Ravel. He would submit works, and you know. Let, now let's let's bring this into it. This is a composer who has already made a name for himself. He already has a blossoming career. He's already been recognized by critics. Now, of course, he had some detractors, but critics and composers such as Debussy, who were singing his praises. He's written at this time, during the time that he starts this Prix de Rome event in 1900. He's 25 years old, and it ends in 1905 when he's 30 and is no longer eligible. Yet you can't, after 30, you're done. Kind of like, you know, a lot of competitions. But by this time, these are the pieces he's writing during this period. And, and this is really mind-blowing. In 1901, he writes Jadot which is a groundbreaking piece for piano and regarded now as one of the greatest masterpieces in the piano literature. Then in 1902 to 1903, he writes the String Quartet. Miraculous piece. I mean, these are masterpieces. Masterpieces. Then in 1903, he writes the Song Cycle, Scheherazade. Another masterpiece. You know, this is like top shelf stuff. And that's followed by another, two other great piano pieces, the Sonatine and then Miroir. In 1904, and, uh, and finishes in 1905, he writes Miroir. And this is when he's trying that last time for the Prix de Rome. And fails again and again and again and again, as we know. And we can talk about, you know, each one of those attempts. But this is the level, this is the the level of the quality. I mean, it's unbelievable. Now, no one would look, if you mentioned these pieces, you wouldn't look and criticize any of them as being, oh, well, you know, that's early Ravel. There's, you know, he, he was still finding his way and... There are flaws. Maybe there's, 
you know, maybe the last movement of the string quartet isn't as great as the other three, even Foray criticized it a little bit, but each one of those pieces are fantastic. Yeah, and that goes back to the, you know, the conversation that I had with Alex Shapiro about composition competitions in that some of them have required that composers have their own voice in some pieces be original. And what I was telling her is that a lot of composers in their 20s, when it comes to their compositional voice, that's like the equivalent of learning how to tie your shoe. And for me, I didn't really find my original voice in my music until I hit my 40s. So Ravel, when he entered the Prix de Rome, he was already established as a famous composer. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so young when he's already achieved this level of mastery. And and where did it come from? You know, it's, it's incredible. But well, it wasn't good enough for some of the old stuffy stick in the mud judges. <laughs> yeah, and about those crusty conservative conservator judges, that is who we're going to talk about next. And I wanted to ask you that, so the people that would judge the Prix de Rome, they were the faculty of the composition department, correct? Right. Yeah. So like, there's a problem there, right? Yeah. <laughs> there's a huge problem with that. <laughs> and in addition to that, in addition to the composition faculty, there was also another organization that would review the compositions, right? Right. So the um, the the society, the Beaux Arts Society, similar to what they have in the art, like the exhibitions. We had the. Um, hold on, let me find here. So I had okay. So the it was. It by presidential decree in seven in eighteen in eighteen seventy one. So this is before, right? By presidential decree, the Prix de Rome was under the aegis of France's Academy des Beaux Arts, division of the Institute of France, and so they were um, overseeing everything. But they weren't. from what I gathered, they were not the ones that judged right. the submissions. The submissions were judged by, you said it, you know, the director of the conservatoire, who at the time was Dubois, who then stepped down after that final attempt in 1905. And, and then there was, um, you know, so there were nine, altogether, there were nine people on the jury panel. Let's have somewhere here. Well, I, it doesn't matter. I, I don't have their names on hand, but there was one teacher, um, and you write, you mentioned him in your paper, uh, six of his students were included as the finalists in that last round. This was 1905, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, and by coincidence, just by coincidence, six of his students were allowed to go on to the last round. So definitely 
there a lot of politics here. Oh yeah, I've got it. I actually have it right here. Um, in 1901, there were nine jurors: Dubois, Lenapu, Massenet, Sanson were among the nine judges. Really? Yes. And Sanson was there, and he um, he was somewhat supportive of Ravel, but they all um, he he was not able to get enough votes in order to make it. He got eliminated after the first round in 1901. So to determine who advances past the first round, um, was it a unanimous vote or was it more like a five to four vote or like was it like a unanimous consensus among? I think it was by the number of votes. The number of votes. Got, not a unanimous decision. They tallied up how many said yes and, and it was by the number of votes. Okay. And so, and sometimes they didn't have a winner, you know, if they if somebody didn't get enough votes. That's what happened with one of the years where they had to keep going back to the drawing board and voting again and again and again until they were able to come up with a winner. Because um, for three or four times when they were tallying up the votes, they you know they came up short each time. So. Right. I believe that happened in 1901, or was that 1902 that there was no clear winner in the Prix de Rome? 1902, no clear winner, yeah. Yeah, because no one got enough votes. Right. You know, something that I'm still scratching my head to is basically Ravel, you know, he was applying for the Prix de Rome, he was going to the conservatoire, but on the other end, he was writing these game-changing compositions. And here he was. And I'm trying, as a composer, I'm trying to put myself in Maurice Ravel's head. And fellow composers who were listening do the same thing. Imagine that you were in Ravel's position and you're writing these game-changing pieces, but yet you're going to school and the things that you are doing, you're not doing. Right. put in a musical straitjacket. Yeah, you're basically put into a musical straitjacket. And for me, anyways, that would create a lot of conflict in the type of style that I want to write. So Ravel, you know, uh, apart from not really not winning the Prix de Rome at all, he also had a dilemma in that he didn't win any prizes in his classes. He didn't win a prize in piano. He didn't win a prize in harmony. And I believe because he didn't win a prize in harmony, Professor Lewis, stop me if I'm wrong, he actually got kicked out of Foray's class. Am I correct? Yeah, yeah, he out. Right. He had audit. Yeah. He had to just come back as an auditor. How humiliating. Yeah. And, you know, there will become a time where a composer will get comfortable in this style and be set in their ways. As far as Ravel is concerned, I'm wondering why did he stay at the school and why did he continue trying to apply for the Prix de Rome? In my opinion, I mean, I think he was just wasting his time at the conservatoire. 
I think you're right. And it really is curious. Like, why why did he continue? Was it because he wanted to study with Foray? Like, what was he... What was he learning? What I mean, what he had can't be taught, really. Yeah. You know, it, it, why was he even in school? Why and why was that important to him? Well, should we talk about why maybe the prize was important to him? Yeah, that's um, where I want to go to next because I believe during this time, Ravel was getting compared a lot to Debussy, and I think he wanted to live to that to that reputation, right? Right. That happened right from the get-go, and there, that was kind of an interesting relationship that that they had in terms of being fellow composers, not on a personal level. On a personal level, that, that was kind of, that's an aside, and, and that's not even relevant to our, our conversation here. Um, but in, But it should be mentioned, in the end, I think, what soured their relationship was because Ravel took the was sympathetic to to Debussy's wife. You know, Debussy dumped his wife Lily and went off and I think he probably divorced her. Lily then got really upset and almost commit. She tried to commit suicide but was unsuccessful. But many of Debussy's friends fellow artists, he had a lot of artist friends and musicians, took Lily's side. And then Debussy kind of soured on them. And that's what happened with Ravel, too. He took Lily's side and not Emma's side, the new woman in Debussy's life. And, you know, then Debussy didn't, from what, everything that I've read and what I know, he wasn't exactly the nicest guy. Uh, and of course, he said some rather uh, cutting and uh, sarcastic and snarky things about other fellow composers. But he was very supportive of Ravel early on. And of course, Ravel adored Debussy and above all else, Helios and Melisande. That was almost like a religion for Ravel and his fellow comrades, Laissez-Pache. They kind of formed their reason for being in the first place was because of their love for Apelius and Melisande. So um, Debussy was was a very important role model for Ravel, and from the early on, he was compared to Debussy and seen as Debussy's rival, the new kid on the block. And then, of course, there are several striking similarities between some of Ravel's compositions. The string quartet, of course, begs that question right off the bat, the similarity between the two uh, quartets, the, the second movements. They are both pizzicato movements. And, you know, it doesn't help that now in the 20th century recordings, they're always paired together. You you know, in the old days when people bought CDs, you bought a CD and it was the Debussy and the Ravel string quartets. <laughs> That's so the CD on. that I actually have. Yeah, me too. <laughs> we all do. But, and then there are striking resemblances between some of Debussy's pieces and Ravel. So very often Ravel got there first and then Debussy... You can't help but wonder was influenced and let's say inspired by what Ravel did, 
especially with some of the piano music. So, um, so sometimes Ravel got there first, sometimes Debussy got there first, but they were kind of swimming all in this. They were both swimming in the same water. That's how I look at it. Right. Um, so before we go into the juicy details about uh, going into each year that Ravel applied for the Prix de Rome, and my you, listeners, I mean, if this was made today and this was made into a reality show, this would be like rating gold for a reality show. <laughs> but um, one theory I wanted to throw at you, Professor Lewis, was do you think the reason why Ravel stayed at the conservatoire and tried to apply for the Prix de Rome for so many years was because of his perfectionist mentality? I, we do know that Ravel was a perfectionist. And I think Ravel, looking back on... Debussy and Berlioz being the winner. Do you think that is why he wanted to win and he also wanted to get a prize in Foray's class to really validate himself in a way as a famous composer? I do think so. However, and this is something that you bring out in your paper so wonderfully. And may I just, a, a little sidebar here. I have to tell you, and you know, I and I hope your listeners will appreciate this. I have to say that at each time when I've taught the Ravel class, and I've had you know a healthy number of students because that class is usually very popular, and everybody writes papers. Okay, I have to say, Greg, that your paper by far was the most memorable one. I don't, I mean, I can just remember that paper, and I remember your presentation. So um, it was. Yeah, it was very special. But anyway, but so the irony, the irony in this perfectionism is that he didn't apply that perfectionist side of himself to his assignments for these. There was one, uh, I was, as I told you, I was kind of brushing up for this and doing some readings, and there's a wonderful book that came out after you had your seminar with me, the most authoritative and last word on Ravel so far now, the Roger Nichols biography, sometimes his handwriting was so bad that they couldn't even read it. And that's not like Ravel. And I can tell you, because I went to the Bibliothèque Nationale and looked at all, I you know, with the microfiche machine, it, France is really funny, you know, they're not as high-tech as we are, so they still had everything on, you know, microfiche. And I looked at all of the autograph manuscripts, maybe not every single one, and his handwriting is gorgeous. I mean, it's he had quite a penmanship, so it's not like him. So he definitely didn't apply that perfectionist side of himself to these assignments. So it kind of begs the question, and you can see he just probably was so conflicted about this. He wanted to win for, you know, a number of reasons, but at the same time, it just went against his brain, and it brought out that rebellious side of him because he was anti-establishment, and this was the establishment. So he was just bucking the establishment every... He, it must have been a very torturous experience for him to have to undergo this. Right. 
you know, I've entered numerous competitions and I only got accepted into a very small fraction uh, percentage wise of them. And the one thing that was ingrained in my head from when I started composition up until now is that your scores when you apply for these things have to be in tip top shape. And for you Berkeley alumnus in the composition department and you undergrads in the composition department who are listening to this, you know exactly what I mean when I'm going to mention this, the um, portfolio, when you have to hand in your portfolios, you have to hand in a, at Berkeley, at least you have to hand in a fugue, a sonata, um, three short pieces, et cetera, et cetera. And, the faculty looks over them and if your score is not in tip top shape, they send it back to you and you have to correct it, which sometimes, you know, and I'm sorry to say this Berkeley faculty, it was a major pain in the butt to do, but, um, to go back to Ravel, it was like Ravel would enter these competitions and his perfection perfectionist mentality was there but the mind-boggling thing is is that he would make mistakes that not even an undergrad would make and he would continue to make these mistakes as he would apply for the prix de rome and that's something i don't even understand why he did right especially that last time yeah. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about um, Ravel's first attempt in applying for the Prix de Rome in 1900. He applied with a fugue and a choral piece. And here you go. He the problem with both pieces is that they're too modern. And for all you people who took traditional harmony and counterpoint classes in undergrad, you know what I'm talking about. He used extended harmonies, parallel motion and unresolved cadences, which is a big no it's a big no-no in things that you can't do when you're using the rules yeah yeah so he's breaking all he's breaking all of the the rules yeah yeah definitely that's what they're looking at yeah and it was weird because to coincide with Ravel entering the Prix de Rome, he also had a fugal exam in his counterpoint class and failed it and was given a zero by Dubois. Right. And then kicked out. Yeah. Yeah. And he was kicked out of the class and already he was starting to burn bridges, which is not really a good thing. Now we're into 1901 and here's the really weird thing. In that in 1901, I believe. Oh, he did pretty well. That was the best year. 1901. Yeah. Yeah, yeah he did pretty well, yeah. which was the, a really strange, bizarre thing because he actually played ball. All right. He goes up very uh, pedestrian. Yeah. He got third prize. Yeah. Yeah. That was the year that no prize was given in the competition, correct? No one won. Yeah. 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 Yeah, in his cantata. And I remember, Professor Lewis, when I played this in class for the first time during my presentation, you were absolutely laughing hysterically. Oh, because, <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, when you listen to this cantata for the very first time, and for people who are diehard Maurice Ravel fans, this cantata is 
a complete opposite of everything that Ravel has ever written. And he is this year he is totally going the company line trying to win this one. And so this cantata is nothing like Ravel ever written before. This cantata, instead of it sounding like Ravel, sounds more like something that Wagner, Mahler, or even early Schoenberg would probably write. It's very German. It's very dramatic sounding, very Wagnerian. So it's definitely Ravel was towing the company line or selling his soul or doing something, anything to win the Prix de Rome prize. So he did not win that year. Let's go into 1902. And this is very weird in that going back to our conversation about Ravel's poor handwriting, this would show in the next year where Ravel would barely get out of the first round because the piece that he submitted was barely legible. People could barely write it, but he did get to the final. And when Ravel got to the final, this is weird. So in 1901, you would think he would tow the company line again and write this nice, dramatic, Wagnerian piece. He did the opposite. He wrote a piece that sounded like Peleus and Melisande by Debussy, and he didn't win the prize. And this is something that, Professor Lewis, that I don't understand, that Ravel knew what had to be done, and yet in 1902, he didn't do it. And so in 1902, he wrote... um, the the person that won his name was La uh, where to go ah Lepara won and that was actually a student of Foray and <laughs> the third failure left Ravel severely disappointed. This is what uh, this is from the Nichols book that later biography which only came out I don't know a few years ago. And he writes to, so Ravel writes to a childhood friend, I'm back at the grindstone, and now look on the Rome Concours as a bad dream. I have absolutely no intention of going through again. Despite Lepara's triumph, and this is so interesting, he can't have a very happy memory of it either, and I don't think he'll want to relive the moment when Foray his professor and mine declared in front of the whole institute that this decision was, that he won, right? This decision was scandalous and clearly reached in advance. That was certainly everyone's opinion, I have to say, which doesn't alter the fact that Foray's behavior was considered extremely courageous, firstly because Lapara was a student of his, I mean, his student wins and then says his student didn't deserve to win, right? That's what's happening here. But secondly, because by doing so, he's closed the doors of the Institute to himself forever. I mean, for that was a no-no for Foray to do that. And he was set to occupy the first place that became vacant. As for the happy winner, faced with his teacher's unexpected attitude, 
he had a nervous attack. So, uh, this, yeah, this prize was really fraught with lots of problems. And that concludes part one of my interview with Professor Alexandra Lewis about Maurice Ravel's many attempts at trying to win the Prix de Rome. Next week, I will have part two uploaded. And if you are interested in hearing part two a lot sooner, you can sign up as a member for my Patreon page, www.patreon.com slash Houston Experiment, and become a member. If you do, not only will you get access to earlier episodes, but you will also get access to recordings of concerts from previous Houston Experiment concerts, as well as recordings of my compositions, because a lot of people, for some reason, have been asking about recordings of my compositions. So if you want to hear it, become a member and you can. So until next time, I will see you next week. And that concludes this week's podcast. Remember, if you're interested in becoming a sponsor for the Houston Experiment, please visit www.patreon.com slash Houston Experiment and become a member. If you like the show, please leave a like or review the Houston Experiment on Apple Podcasts. Each like or review will help people find the Houston Experiment podcast, which will greatly be appreciated.